Hello, anybody there? Hey, Jaime. It's Martha. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Great to meet you. Get to talk to you. Yeah. Great to talk to you, too. So I'm very excited to have this chat. Where are you at these days? You're in California. Is that right? Yeah, I'm California, Northern California. So uh, bottom of the San Francisco Bay. <laughs> Wonderful. So. We're going to get to talk about a lot of things, uh, especially family dynamics and relationships. But uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on Bliss Road, which is a, an amazing work that I got the chance to take a look at this week. And I had such an easy time going into the world that you that you were sharing with us, your world. And I'm very excited to know, I guess, first and foremost, before we set this stage on everything, how you're feeling now that this is out in the world. Uh, I think it's really important that if you're going to publish a memoir, that uh, you have processed everything enough that you feel fine and not like you're going to croak. Because if you <laughs> if you feel so nervous and worried and uh, vulnerable, then you're clearly not ready and there's still things to work through. And I actually felt that all while I was writing the memoir is that um, I would have kind of periods of panic and then I would back off and recede. And then as I continued to work and that it continued to evolve the story uh, based on uh, my writer's group uh, critiques and comments from other people, um, I gradually learned more and more and I even you know going through therapy was fantastic because it, it discovers these kind of bubbles of things that, uh, that need to be discovered and insights that need to be made and then once you get to a certain point then you feel uh, like you are ready and um, it's funny because in my writing book which I wrote in 2007 uh, I actually counseled that wisdom before I had that wisdom, is that if you feel uh, too worried about releasing a memoir into the world, then don't do it because the chances that you're going to be resentful and hurtful uh, to others and not helpful mm -hmm. are much higher. So it was interesting to actually have to take my own advice. Yeah. And so. I, one of the things I appreciated about the work was that you did such a great job of establishing what the concerns were very early on as you were sharing your own family story. But as we get further into the, into the work, there, there is a kind of release of these concerns and you are providing the solutions that have worked for you. And that, that was something that, that I thought was really interesting to have in memoir form. But before we, we kind of keep digging into it, I'm curious to know, if you'd be able to share a, a brief synopsis of the perspective of the book, uh, just to let the listeners know if we could encompass Bliss Road in so many words uh, so that they know what the major through lines of your, your memoir are. Well, it's the um, first ever uh, memoir of its kind, uh, namely that it's the first memoir by the neurotypical child of a... Uh, autistic dad. And uh, usually books are by and for autistic people, and there are thousands of them. But when I started looking for myself, I couldn't find any that related to the psychological impact of kids. And neurotypical for your listeners means that uh, you, your brain pattern, so to speak, your brain type is within a certain uh, um, span considered to be normal. 
I know that that phrase even is uh, problematic now because uh, of people's uh, in uh, sensitivity to neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. But um, but because of that, um, it means that I was able to pick up on um, the lack of emotional bonding that occurred because my dad was autistic and um, lacked that ability. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Uh, you know, and it, it's it's a hard thing to explain because, and that's one of the reasons that I went into uh, laying the foundation. It's an almost invisible thing. So you, when you start telling other people, there the the response can almost be, you know, what are you griping about? Nobody is very close to their parents, mm. perhaps, and um, you know, um, we all have our difficulties and such. But uh, what I discovered is that it's a foundational uh, lack of uh, emotion, emotional bonding. And um, the, the good news is that, you know, what I'm just discovering is that it wouldn't take much to really improve the, um, you know, the parenting skills of neurodiverse parents. And that's a very hopeful thing. Right. So that's what I'm really hoping is that uh, is that we get uh, researchers who are actually interested in this so that they can provide strategies to neurodiverse parents. And they can be very simple, but it should be from birth. It should be things mm-hmm. like you have to hold your child for a certain amount per day. You have to look in the child's eyes. You have to actually talk to the child and things of that uh, so that that emotional bonding can occur. Because right. whatever emotional disconnect I, I experienced with my dad didn't occur when I was like five and I got upset with him for not understanding me. Mm-hmm. It happened at birth. Right. And so... Yeah. yeah, and that was. I, I'm really glad that you selected one of the one of your readings that hopefully we'll get a chance to do here in a, in a moment about those initial stages of recognition that are so important. And and I loved how there was this moment of almost therapy. And I I don't mean to say therapeutic in in a light way or anything, but I found it so powerful that you had this moment where you imagined yourself going back to that that situation, that instance. And I thought that was the one of the most powerful moments in the book because I, I had to step back and just take a moment and say, can you, can you imagine how, how much better things would have been had the individual, the parent had the tools and that's all it is. It's not an attack. And, and yes, it is a very emotional aspect of it, but that's what I love about this work is that you're able to share. What if we had these tools and what if we can keep working toward gathering more tools for for these folks. And so I thought that was one of the more powerful moments of, of the book for sure. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, very impressive, uh, because the neurodiverse community takes so much flack from others who don't necessarily understand that the tendency to want to get, um, you know, upset or bristle immediately at, um, uh, any mention is because they've, it reflects how much stress they've been under. So I want to make it really clear. I am from a neurodiverse family. Mm. I have neurodiverse members. I am not apart from it. I am within it. Mm. So I am part of this community. I'm just in a different part of the community. And therefore, I have no intention other than really good intention, mm-hmm. really good encouragement and inspiration and um, trying to uh, promote uh, improvement because you're exactly right. Who wants to, who wants to uh, be a uh, underperforming parent? Nobody. If you have somebody, do you, yeah. <laughs> you want to hurt your child? Their, their response is <laughs> no, certainly not. 
So it's a matter of, um, of giving them the tools, which is exactly correct, which is exactly the process that has occurred uh, uh, all through time as we discover more and more about the brain. Similar to dyslexia, there wasn't a name for it, but uh, scientists started noticing these problems with these kids and how come they, they're unable to read and so forth. And then they came up with a name for it. They came up with symptoms for it. They came up with strategies for it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of this process, we have a name for autism. We have the symptoms. And now it's a matter of looking at all of the angles, how to deal with it, not just from the autistic person's point of view, but the, the uh, impact. Kids. Absolutely. And one of the more illuminating things for me was the, the way that you expertly went back and gave us the timeline of development. And uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about your background in journalism and how that may have facilitated that. But if we could digress a little bit into how that came to be, how you were able to fashion the, the history of the research of, of this condition and your own family history. Can you describe a little bit what that process was like? Because it's two massive threads that are kind of getting woven in the pretty much the first half of the book as you're, as you're giving us the humane context of it and, of course, the research side of it. Can you tell me a bit about how that came to be? Well, it, it, you can tell readers something. You can say, oh, the person was smart. But that doesn't mean the readers are going to believe it. Right, telling them does it ha- what evidence do they have? And so that was the problem that I had. I said, "Hey, this had a pro- I could have told readers this had a profound psychological effect on me." And readers would have said, "Well, okay, show us." And so the only way to do that was to actually move up through time as um, as uh, studies about autism were uh, taking place throughout history so that I could see the development, how it paralleled with my family, and to to essentially get to the conclusion that there was absolutely no way that my dad could have been diagnosed for for autism because of the timeline of research regarding autism. He uh, he was well in his uh, late 60s, early 70s by the time autism became a diagnosis. And, uh, you know, uh, by then we were all uh, off on our own. So we weren't living with him to, you know, re-question his symptoms, perhaps, and his behaviors. Not only that, but his, his, he'd structured his lifestyle in a way that suited him. So he was very peaceful and, uh, and uh, well-grounded in his life. So why, why would we even consider having him assessed? Right. There was so much going on with kids and trying to get them assessed and stuff. So there's no reason. But then, of course, the problem was that my mom got cancer. And as soon as she got cancer and provided this big um, uh, conflict for my dad and his head uh, there, that's what blew up mm-hmm. <laughs> our, our thinking on the subject. Yeah. That's what caused us to really question. Right. And, uh, and so uh, that was really important. It's like unless you set the stage for how things came to be, people just won't understand. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. I mean, there's been any number of shows or books or anything, and you're, you're left thinking, well, I, I don't really get it. And so, you know, until you actually set the stage for them to get it, you know, they mm-hmm. won't. Right. So tell me a bit of your background in journalism, because it seems like you did, you studied it and you went into, into that profession for quite a while. Uh, and can you share some thoughts on how that, illuminated the the way that you wrote this work? 
Uh, I think uh, I have used journalism every day of my life, uh, especially, uh, you know, since getting my degree, because I think what it helps you do is gain a little distance as you do your research with it, which I think is really necessary, especially in really highly emotional situations like this. You know, when I'm looking at my own family history and all the emotions connected to it, oh, how nice it is to be able to step back and look at this research and see, you know, um, rather than constantly being... um, confronted by um, anger or resentment or whatever I happen to be feeling. Mm. Uh, And journalism, it does a great job in uh, having you question everything. And this is kind of an interesting point because in our culture, it's like, you know, we have a lot of problem with folks just, you know, um, accepting whatever they hear. And I, I refuse to do that. Because I wasn't trained to do that. It's like, you never do that. <laughs> you always say, somebody says something, and you, uh, and then you say, well, that's interesting. I'm going to go check that out. And so uh, that was very important here to uh, see um, how the uh, research had built. And um, uh, it has a certain amount of... Um, uh, structure to it that you uh, and uh, discipline, I say, you know, is that you don't leave those um, uh, those T's uncrossed. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, it's like, you know, somebody had said to me, uh, uh, an acquaintance, they were, uh, they were saying, oh, you know, autism was, you know, caused by, you know, vaccines. And, oh, and yeah. so I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> so it caused me, it was really good. I didn't have an immediate response, but it was really good because it caused me to go back and look at all that and understand the situation, mm-hmm. you know, which was really important, you know? Yeah. And I, I think one of the, the, more impressive aspects of this whole thing is how level headed, uh, the, the expression of your life story was, uh, and, and I mean, just goes back to what you were saying earlier that you really had to work through a lot of this stuff. And how long did this work take from the moment that you started working on this or, or can you share a bit about that particular aspect of the, of the work? How, how long did this take you to put together? Well, the uh, whole experience um, it took about ten years, but the actual writing took about two two years uh, or so. Uh, and um, uh, I guess, and I had tons of false starts, you know, because it's so kind of massive and uh, mm. you know uh, octopus like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, had to really uh, figure out where to start and and uh, so forth. Um, so. Um, that was an interesting uh, process. Once it got going, I think once I got my footing, like say after about a year, then it just kind of flowed. And you know, the most interesting point was that at some point the poetry just came into it. All the poetry was written in that time period. And for your listeners, um, don't worry. Uh, this, uh, <laughs> it's not a poetry book. <laughs> Instead, it's um, essentially a poem that starts each, each different segment. And the idea is that was directly related to that period so that you can see this transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, ironically, it was, um, it, I was so closed down emotionally that the only thing that was working was poetry. That's mm-hmm. the only way I could talk to myself. I had no, no way to, to, I was so closed. I had no way to 
to um, express myself. It was it was kind of a shocking situation because I've you know written all my life you know and so forth, and to be to to discover exactly how emotionally shut down you are mm-hmm. is pretty shocking. Yeah. You know because you're yeah. thinking I'm I'm living this fine life. I've got these two kids, and I you know look like <laughs> everybody else, and yet you're you're just a, you know you're just a mess. Yeah, you know, and internally a mess, and yet you have to get up and you go to work, and nobody notices anything different. But it's, you know, it, it's it's really I really feel for people, especially, um, uh, you know, they always say, oh, these folks, they just implode and they go do these drastic things, and you know, it, it, I guess if each of us could really understand that you're never going to know what somebody else is feeling unless they want you to know, and if they don't, they won't. But you shouldn't assume that there isn't a tornado raging inside them. So yeah. it's like being able to like reach out to especially people who tend to be really quiet and, uh, you know, or they seem disturbed or something, you know, mm-hmm. it's no big, you know, deal to say, hey, you know, if you want to go to lunch sometime or if you, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. want to talk about it a little bit, they might not be able to, but it's better than just saying, oh, well, uh, I'm going to give up. Yeah. You know, it's like ask them what's what's your story. You know, what's going on here? Yeah. So it I, might lead to some help, right? And I I also think that you you had a a wonderful through line of addressing the generational aspects of this too, uh, and how when the time came to have this kind of reckoning, when so many things were were swirling negatively in in your life with your mother situation and your father getting worse or more overt and some of those symptoms. I, I love this idea that the way that you described it, which was what you were saying just now, which is just letting somebody know how you're actually feeling. And you understood that as an actual barrier that was existing, but culturally or, or because of the time period when you were raised, you just couldn't vocalize it. It couldn't materialize. And, uh, that was just so elegantly done given the context of everything that was going on. But it's a lesson for a lot of us who, and I, I repeat this often in, in the podcast, but it's like not having the language, not knowing how to address something within ourselves. And even if it's just having something like a fragment of poetry to use as some kind of thread to get out of that situation or to start understanding yourself was, uh, was very much well done. But I was just going to comment on the poetry there for a sec but <laughs> that was that was yeah. a, a very lovely touch because it was a break um there were some chapters that were yeah. heavier than others they they were you know full of a lot of information and a lot of wonderful things that i didn't know about about uh asd but you did a really wonderful job of giving us space to kind of sit through you know with some of these things would you be interested in doing a reading certainly certainly how about i start with the um the poem, and then we can consider going to the uh, kind of the foundational shift issue. I love that. All right? Yeah. All right. So the book opens as a little bit of an explanation uh, that I include in the book is that um, when I was coming to terms with kind of the exact size and dimension of this emotional um, shutdown. Uh, and I was in my fifties uh, by then. Uh, my sister and I had gone kayaking, and we um, uh, then afterward decided to stop at a winery. Uh, and she lives on the east coast in Connecticut. A beautiful summer day, beautiful little winery, lovely gardens, and so forth. 
And I happened to look up at the um, rural road on which this winery was set, and the sign said, Bliss Road. And, you know, it was a moment <laughs> when the angels sang, <laughs> because I thought, wow. <laughs> so this is what, uh, this is the moment. This absolutely encapsulated the journey. There is a sign, Bliss Road, naming a narrow lane atop a high New England hill. The letters written white, radiant in the glow of a dusk summer sun. The view beyond the sign of seeming forever, of tender green hills rolling easy around the blue cool of a calm lake. To cross the line, to reach the other place, takes but a few steps across an uneven width of black pavement in heavy, neck-breaking shadow. And that is the end of that. And that's exactly right. It's like you're just over there. And I assume everybody feels that sometimes. It's just over there. If I could just get there, it's so close. And yet it's, it's, it's a forever. How do I get over there? How do I get into the sunshine? How do I, how do I unburden myself from this, this chill, you know? And the neck breaking work that it requires to yeah. get to that absolutely powerful way to set the tone really elegantly done there. So looking at the way that you arranged this work, how did you find a way to organize this? Or can you talk a bit about the structure of the book and what led you to make these choices to begin the way that you did and to arrive where you did? Um, I think it's very interesting that every single uh, writing project I do, and you, this may happen for you, I suspect it does, is that the subject matter delineates the, um, uh, the form in which you write it. So I have done uh, plays, uh, short stories, flash, um, novels, and so forth. And one of the reasons I'm all over the place is because if subject matter has to be, um, uh, the format has to fit the subject matter, not the other way around. And so uh, that was very true of this one. So uh, I tried, I kind of kept, I tried chapter headings and so forth, and then it just really felt like these different periods of my life. And that's why it went into un, un, um, uh, there are no numbers, there are no chapter headings. It's just segments of the life. So you could really see a, a certain focus, right? Very important initially, for example, to, um, to essentially lay out my dad. And his relationship with us, right? And then it was very important to see how my dad and mom interacted because they were a team and she was a, um, she was his help through life, right? She was his assistant and so forth and how the impact that had and so forth. So that, so it was over time and I am a big proponent of nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. So uh, all of the all of the back and forth and you know cutting and, and shifting and so forth that occurred had to occur. You cannot arrive at a finished product without all of that. So I, I never stress that oh uh, you know I shouldn't be taking this much time or it's not fitting into a certain structure. It has to be what it's going to be, and that is the, that is creativity. You know, in my my opinion, that is a you know creative thought process. Is it has to flow. Right. You know? Right. So. You, you mentioned, sorry, I'm digressing again, but you, you got me thinking of uh, okay. <laughs> the, the way that you wrote about your mom in this book was, was really powerful to me because she, you, 
you refer to her as the buffer, your father's buffer for a lot of the, the social situations that were occurring in, in their life. And how was your mom growing up? And, and uh, just give us a little bit of background on her, because obviously a very pivotal character, not character, I'm sorry, uh, a pivotal no, human no. being, you know, in this narrative and in, in your life. And uh, I'm just curious to know, just to illustrate her as a human being, and then we can talk about your dad, too. She was a um, uh, really uh, great mom. She always wanted to be a mom, and uh, she uh, just have kids and, and be a mom. Uh, she was very, um, had a very upbeat personality and, uh, um, she would sew, she would bake us cookies and <laughs> she would, <laughs> I mean, she was like quintessential mom, you know, which was great. Um, and I think one of the reasons, and since I've talked to other people is one of the, her greatest strengths is her empathy. She had a huge and a very defined sense of empathy toward others. She could mm -hmm. listen to them. She could hear them. She could, she could feel their angst. Uh, and so that was very important. I think that people who are, tend to be very empathetic um, kind of gravitate toward people who have trouble in that regard. Mm -hmm. And certainly um, folks who are autistic do because uh, it is uh, missing a uh, kind of a link in the communication system. And so my mom ended up being that bridge uh, to, so for example, if my dad said something hurtful, my mom was able to, to come in and her very chipper voice, oh, come on, it's going to be okay, you know, and make us, make us feel better and so forth, but uh, which worked sometimes and, and uh, of course didn't in other, other important ways. Um, but uh, she had no... Uh, means of understanding his autism either. Um, mm. And uh, I don't, and I think, I think um, we are, we choose partners who we uh, need for some reason. And for her, I think my dad was, um, uh, he was really safe. He was not a, a guy who was going to be running around on her or mm. abusing her. And she was, you know, my guess is that she probably suffered from anxiety, uh, you know, uh, and uh, um, based on, you know, kind of her upbringing in this don't talk about it era, yeah. uh, you know, that is so debilitating for so many people. You're not taught uh, to have emotions or to talk about them. And so she, um, uh, you know, she didn't like to rock the boat. And so she would smooth things over. Well, the problem with smoothing things over is that you don't necessarily stand up when you should. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the tools, you know, for example, that could be developed for um, uh, neurodiverse parents is that the spouses go along with this training and they say, okay, spouses, you know, uh, it is up to you to, in certain situations, stand up and say, you, this is, you know, not okay. This is a result of your situation. So here's what we're going to do, mm. right? Rather than uh, because because she was my dad's helper, she, my mom was not able to help us. So right, mm. it's like you have to. The spouses have to pick sides. Whereas, uh, you know, in, in in a situation like that, whereas I think in the you know for people who are more um, enlightened, I guess in terms of their parenting. 
then uh, they don't have to pick sides. They can say, okay, uh, this is obviously a result of your symptoms. You're not able to handle X, so let's go to this strategy A. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so that helps, you know, that helps. Yeah. And they were together for a very long time, right? We're talking, uh, was it 40 or 50 years? Is that right? Yeah, I'd uh, I have to do the math on it, but you're right about 42, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, 45, yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, a long time. And they were really devoted to each other. I think my dad just was, you know, he found, um, he found solace in my mom. In other words, a haven. Mm-hmm. He really did. You yeah. know, if you're, uh, if you have trouble emotionally and, and um, with communication and you find one person, you know, he just, he just really was loved her. Mm-hmm. And I think that was always really good about my, my parents. They really did show one another a lot of love. Right. Speaking about your father, what were some things that you feel you have in common with him? Because I know that there are some attributes that, that we take from our, from our parents. And, uh, I, I think you mentioned that he was a very physically active person. He was committed to his health and he watched what he ate and, and things like that. Do you feel that he taught you that, uh, and, and you really taken the, the importance of physical activity and making that a part of your life? I, uh, honestly, I think that, um, it, genetically he was wired to move and I was wired to move. So I just inherited it. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was good. Uh, your, your parents reinforce what perhaps you already have naturally. And so that was probably true for uh, me as well. So seeing him active at a time where you didn't see a lot of people, this was before Jane Fonda, you know, and so forth, <laughs> you know, so, so him getting out to do his runs and so forth was really, um, it was good and it was considered normal. And mm-hmm. so, um, but it's like, uh, he probably used it to soothe himself, right? It's a, mm-hmm. it's a great way to get out stress and so forth. And I yeah. probably did the same thing and have done. I consider it to be a really um, a huge stress reliever. Yeah. Um, and I just physically have a hard time sitting, you know? So it's like, you know, I guess uh, uh, it's possible I have ADHD too. I was never assessed, but my kids were and they both were. So it seems mm. logical. And ADHD, for your uh, listeners, is considered a neurodiverse condition. There are uh, a number of neurodiverse conditions. Uh, you don't even think about it. Uh, mental illnesses like anxiety and depression, uh, psycho- um, physical conditions like stroke or uh, Down syndrome. Uh, you have uh, learning disabilities like dyslexia. Those are all considered neurodiverse conditions. So when you start looking in, around you, yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody has a neurodiverse family member somewhere, whether it's in your in your um, uh, uh, in your nuclear family or extended mm-hmm. family. Some somewhere they're there. Absolutely, need a little extra help. Yeah, and there was a so, um, a very interesting generational aspect of this too, where you weren't just looking back at your relationship with your own parents and your father specifically, but you're also Near near the the conclusion of the book, you you start to look forward and the relationship that you've had with your children and how that's sort of been been affected by by this uh, this condition. And I'm curious if you could share a few thoughts on the lessons learned and and sort of the things that that changed from those realizations. So I think that that was probably the by far the most painful part of the process is understanding that because. I didn't have a model for getting emotionally bonded to my parents 
that I was unable to offer that to my kids. I bonded with my sisters, my two sisters, who were instrumental. Uh, and if you don't bond with your kids, um, that is something that you can't back up. There is no, um, there's no do-over. And so I make that really clear in there. And so trying to not only see how you may have harmed them, as well as to forgive yourself for it was, oh, by far, mm. super painful. Yeah. It was just, it was hard to deal with. Um, but, uh, and then I mentioned in the book that one of the things that helped me was reading uh, Kristen Neff's book on self-compassion, The pow- Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Mm-hmm. And it really was a shocker in terms of how terrible I was to myself. Mm-hmm. I was a true meanie and bully and, you know, <laughs> everything I did, I had this little voice in my head, you stupid, you're you know, you're selfish. You, why'd you do that? How, you know, how, how come you didn't see that and so forth? And so she teaches you how to, um, to be kind to yourself and to realize that every single thing people do is a means of survival. Mm-hmm. And so whatever manner of behavior that they choose to do or uh, is, is really uh, based on a, a real and very human emotion. They are, um, you are humiliated or you are nervous or you feel really bad for somebody else. And those are all really good things. So once you understand perhaps the bad behavior, you actually look at that it was a really good and and worthy uh, foundation uh, that led to that. Mm-hmm. So you didn't do the right thing, but it was it was because of X X and X, and it was oh it was, it was crazy. Um, so I'm much kinder to myself now, and I that really improved my life a lot. Therapy improved my life a lot. If I, I if I could like give a gift to every single person it would be it would be therapy yeah because everybody uh, you know i used to be that person i'd be like i'm fine i'm fine i don't need any help Mm -hmm. you know and uh only to uh you know discover that you don't need any help until you do Mm -hmm. and every single person needs help i don't care who you are you know what i mean If, if you know you might not feel like you need help now but there's going to be a point where you need it. So if, if you can reach out and take that help. Yeah. And you had a very impactful moment in, in the book, one of many, but I, I thought that this was also just as informative as it was impactful uh, because you yet finally made the choice and you documented the choice to pursue therapy. And when you got to that point with all the strength that you needed to get to it, there was still a lesson to learn there. And I'm curious if you could share that because I thought that was a very re- uh, revealing in terms of, of the kind of strength that you need to pursue this, but the strength that is within you to make that change um, about confronting or, or standing up for the kind of care that, that you need. Yeah, that was actually really interesting. I, I think, um, uh, I think what you're referring to is the first time I ever went for therapy. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it, um, I think it was, I typically, because I have a journalism background, I'll typically actually prepare for things. So prepare for meetings. I will, <laughs> I will get some background and I will go in with questions. But I was in such a psychological mess 
but I didn't do that. And instead, what I, I went with this idea, oh, this one person is going to magically take away all of my angst. And uh, so I didn't prepare and I didn't have an idea of what I wanted and what it should look like. And so I went in and talked to this woman who said she had, even though she had nobody, by the way, nobody had any um, uh, experience of dealing with the neurotypical kids of neurodiverse parents. Even though articles had been written about it, there was no, nobody specialized. It was super frustrating. Mm -hmm. In any case, I went to her and she's like, oh, you know, I had a, I had a person, uh, my um, uh, stepson is on the uh, spectrum. And so, oh, okay, that's good. Uh, In any case, uh, she, uh, in the first 15 minutes, she talked only about herself. And so in those 15 minutes, I come in and I am a over, over full glass ready to spill mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> please let i need to be i need some relief let's let this spill out and then she just starts talking about herself and i'm like wow this isn't correct mm-hmm. and she um and then she said oh, i think i know what's wrong she said i think you're uh, i said oh yeah what and she said i think you're on the spectrum and I, I, there was, it was a moment where literally if she had slapped me hard across the face, that would have been better because I, yeah. I was coming to get relief from being misunderstood because of my own parents' autism. And then she, which I would never have experienced. I mean, that's one of the most interesting things is that if I were autistic, I would not have had this problem probably because my own communication system, I would, I would probably recognize that in my autistic parent and there would be no problem. Mm -hmm. But that was the problem is because mine diverged from my parent. That was the problem. And in any case, I, I, um, I stormed out of there and, I was super upset, not only that, for your uh, folks who are listening, is that um, I really then told her that she didn't have the right to assess. You, you, you have to be credentialed mm-hmm. to actually assess a person for a neurodiverse condition. You can't just proclaim it. So don't let anybody <laughs> diagnose you who doesn't have the pri- um, you know, proper credentials. So um, uh, in any case, uh, and I only knew this because my uh, uh, sister is a speech pathologist and works with a lot of autistic, autistic kids, or did, she's since retired. But um, so I knew this, but other people who don't may not realize that. So uh, uh, definitely realize that. But in any case, after that, it taught me, it's like, no, why would you ever go to somebody without knowing what you want and what, mm. what you're looking for? And so I started, so I went to the uh, next, uh, next therapist and then she soon retired and I went to a next therapist. And every time I did, I, I got a better idea of what I'm looking for. And uh, uh, it really helps to uh, understand that if you're going through, if you're trying to progress yourself, it's not a, it's not a, in, in therapy, it's not enough to just go and complain. Ah, this is, I felt that. You know, I mean, that's, that's good for like a session or two. But yeah. really, you need, a, um, you need to be able to progress yourself um, through uh, some means of um, gauging your improvement. You want to be able to see signs of improvement. 
<laughs> right? I know people who've been in, in therapy for years and they're like, it's not working. <laughs> so um, what I did, what I did, for example, is take um, Kristen Nuff's book on self-compassion. They work through chapter by chapter. And every time I hit a something that I wanted or a question I had, that's I would write it down and I would take it to the to the um, therapist so that we could have a direct discussion, not right. just about anything, how things are going or anything. And I, I was learning the whole time. Mm. So you have to set yourself tasks to actually learn because learning is the only way it's going to um, increase your understanding of what happened, but also give you insights on to how to help yourself. And you can't lay it on somebody else to say, yeah, it's your job to, to uh, fix me up. That's not going to happen. It's like you have to be really proactive in, in, uh, in fixing yourself. And so, um, you know, uh, so I mentioned to you that I'm also a personal trainer. And so the two, um, the two uh, uh, work direct, uh, directly in parallel. You know, I teach folks that, yes, uh, you can go to a personal trainer and you can say, hey, you know, just just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But unless you're actually learning a process for dealing with how to progress yourself, uh, you will never gain the tools necessary to progress yourself. Right. You will always be reliant on that person, uh, you know. And so so there you go. So that's what I did. That's what I did. <laughs> I, used those, <laughs> I used those skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. that. At this time, I'd like to ask you if you could do another reading because I think this one is is one of the. I actually think this is this is such a beautiful passage, but it's it's an incredible piece of writing here that you did around page fifty, the emotional disconnect that may have occurred when mm -hmm. I was young. If you could, yeah. Yeah, um, and as a little bit of background um, for uh, folks, uh, they have done, and I allude to the studies in the book, uh, that your self-esteem um, is set when you're very young, not, uh, not when you're 10 or whatever. It starts, you know, pretty much from the moment you're born. And so this is kind of based on that. Envision I'm a baby of between six months and a year old. I'm sitting on a floor in a white-walled room. A man stands before me. Beside me is a thing people sit on. I recognize the man. He's somehow connected to the woman who feeds and dresses me. I don't have a name for him or her or the chair because I'm so young. But I know the man and woman from the chair. They're like me. They move and make noise. What they do determines how I feel. Happy, scared sad, or any variety of other emotions for which I have no names. I rely on people's eyes for clues about whether they'll be mean or nice to me. That's why I'm waiting for the man to look at me. I want an idea of what he'll do. The fact he hasn't looked at me yet makes me anxious because it's unusual. I've noticed when the woman walks in, she looks at me immediately. Then she smiles and picks me up. Sometimes she jiggles me around while making faces, and I feel warm inside and laugh. After studying the room, the man lowers his eyes toward me. They reach my head and without stopping, move down my face and body, then slide sideways to the chair. Something happened, though I don't know what. His eyes pass mine with no pause or smile or interest. He looks at the chair the same way. If he's important to me somehow, he must know what's what. If he treats me like a chair, I must be like a chair. 
a thing, no worse, no better. And and that's, uh, as I had mentioned, that uh, I, I wrote that section because it's really um, hard to convey this sense of, of being treated like you're nothing. Like, in other words, there was no... I, uh, there was no, um, um, I'm sure no thought on my dad's part. He's like, oh, I'm going to look at this child and treat them like nothing. It's, it's, the, it's the impairment of that communication system uh, that caused that. But it, essentially, that's what it did. It gives you this, it gives a child this feeling like they are, there's no need for discussion because there's nothing to discuss. Mm. There's, there's this thing there's right. And there's yeah. this thing is part of my environment and it, and uh, it's hard to, and I go into explain exactly how difficult it is to realize that, you know, trying to realize that I, I was nothing, <laughs> you know, that it felt like nothing was uh, again, really shocking thing. Yeah. You have to develop very elaborate psychological structures to uh, cocoon yourself from this very big secret about yourself that if anybody were to get inside they would see nothing it would Mm -hmm. be vacant it would be a void yeah and so that's one of the reasons i did that section is that i i believe that that kind of emotional separation happens from birth from birth if you're if the if the parent doesn't know how to properly handle and emotionally bond with their kid yeah it's such a powerful moment, and, and to me, I, I think it exemplifies the core of of the disconnect, the misunderstanding, you know, that happens in those situations. And it feels like that is only possible when you've done the work, when you you have gone through so much, um, when you've had enough distance from from the situation that you were able to so elegantly describe that relationship and in, in the way that is, but. If I may ask specifically like a technical thing on this, on this segment, when did you write this in the process of putting the book together? This was actually uh, relatively early. Uh, I was essentially dealing in just pieces of this um, and uh, trying to figure out how to put them together. And uh, that was the, and I would, I was working with my uh, critique group as well, and uh, they would have problems. uh, uh, Again, they're like, I don't really understand what you were going through. Mm-hmm. So it's like you have to come up with some sort of technique or method by which you can actually explain what you think happened. And that's the infuriating part of it yeah. is that your uh, uh, memories, that uh, things that you actually remember don't um, occur or uh, don't start happening until you're older. So how do you know what happened to you? Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to more or less just give the feeling of what it was like. And, and, and uh, it's, it's, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a mention in my book about um, the problem. Sometimes, sometimes autistic people have a flat affect. And what that means is that they might stare at you, right? And that makes people very uncomfortable. That's a socially uh, um, um, taboo thing to do. You don't just stare at other people mm-hmm. for that reason. But they, it happens with them just merely because, and that is kind of the idea is that you're looking at something, but it doesn't, it's not like you're recognizing that person. There's no emotion behind it. 
right? There's no, and so that's what I wanted to kind of convey and what that uh, can do. And uh, with kids, they don't have, if I had, if somebody had told me, um, oh, you know, uh, that's a symptom, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, I get that. But when you're little like that, there's no words for it. There's mm-hmm. no nobody to explain it. My mom didn't have any symptoms to do, explain. Like if she'd been able to say, hey, uh, this is the condition, God, this is the symptom. You know, let's have yeah. some uh, safe words. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, yeah. like he's ignoring you or something. Come to me and let's talk about that. Right. Right. So um, communication, I think, is about little kids um, uh, read uh, expressions uh, so that they can they can point to pictures. And this is how I'm feeling, mom or dad. I think those are great. I would have loved that. I would have loved to use that with my kids and I would have loved, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully parents nowadays are doing that. You know, here's this yeah. big chart on the wall. How are you feeling today? <laughs> you know, you can't, it, and that way, if you can't, uh, if you can't express yourself, Oh, we might have a problem. Right. You know? Right. So if I may ask, uh, what has the response been with your family in terms of, the work that you've put out into the world and, and as you were putting this together and now that it's seen the light of day, how, how does your family feel about it? My, uh, um, I'm going to say just very supportive. Uh, and that's a kind of a limited thing because primarily the two people I had in mind most were my sisters. And of course their immediate families, especially since I mentioned my, my nephews in it and so forth by name. So I, we're really clear. It's like, how do you feel about this? I'll change anything you need to, you know, because my sisters are my, they were absolutely my saviors when I was a kid. They were my haven. They were who, were, who I went to and so forth. So there's nothing that I would do to damage those, that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and I had to go over and I was like, is there anything in here which I feel is, is mean or mean-hearted, mean-spirited, anything that could be interpreted by uh, other extended family members who I don't talk to anymore, but mm-hmm. might get a copy. Is there anything in there that could, you know, hurt them? And, uh, and I, I, there, there isn't. Uh, my guess is that you know, if I had, uh, like, I don't, I don't really know my dad's extended family, and I've, my, I know my mom's extended family to, uh, you know, um, but um, you know, not enough that they would feel, I think, um, jeopardized by this. Mm-hmm. So, um, right, you know, mostly I think if, if you're, uh, if, if like my dad still has some siblings who are alive, uh, but I don't know them very well. Uh, mm-hmm. But they'd probably be, oh, you know, kind of why do you have to bring this out into the open light? <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly the, the culture that, we're, uh, you know, I told is, is a very repressive thing. So hopefully they would be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just sorry that happened. And, you know, I understand. And, you know, hopefully that would be the case. But I don't know. Right. In other words, I feel I feel really good about it. And I, I might I hope that it inspires other people, especially therapists, to get more information so they can help other people yeah. uh, in my situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure I'm certain that it will. I mean, it, it's just such a, a peculiar situation. But the more you read, it, read into it, the more you realize that there are millions and millions of people who are going through a similar situation as you as you've documented in, in the work. Now, I only got two more questions for you to be mindful of your time. And uh, I know we're just scratching the surface with this wonderful work that you put together. And we didn't get a chance to talk about your previous works as well and a lot of the other work that you do. So maybe <laughs> we'll, okay. we'll have to chat some other time. But I'm curious to know how you feel about your relationship with your parents, 
Now that you've written this work, I know it's it's sort of a, a big general question, but in terms of atonement and healing and and looking looking at what they what they did for you and how they tried to do the best they could with with um, the resources they had. Now that you've written this, how, what's that relationship in your mind like? Well, I think uh, it's funny because book um, made me question whether I believe in forgiveness. And I don't necessarily believe in that, right? Forgiveness, uh, it means that you, uh, to me in a way, and it's possible that other people would uh, disagree, um, that you could take away what's happened. But I don't think that's true. What I do believe in is understanding. And uh, in other words, when you finally understand what exactly happened the whole way around it and in depth and you understand why people did what they did i do believe in understanding uh that um essentially deal with what's occurred and i certainly feel that's the case with my parents um i think that they were just doing the the best that they could like parents and like all parents they made mistakes uh, and that's very natural, and I have had to admit that myself. Um, so um, it's just, it, it, it was really cathartic, I guess, to understand why they did what they did. And just being these good people, you know, who tried hard, but it just, it didn't work out. <laughs> that's what <laughs> happens with parenting. It, you yeah, know, yeah. You have the... <laughs> They go askew, and I think most families are like that. It doesn't go exactly right, and you have to be able to deal with that. And, and so that's what I think. Wonderful. And uh, la- lastly, here, um, what is it that we'd like to impart uh, to the reader in terms of the disconnect? What are the primary disconnects that we need to uh, make people aware of? What is it that you think is the most important thing that this book has to has to share with those folks? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's um, getting the idea that um, it's not those people over there. It's not that family over there. If you look very carefully at your own family, you're going to find these people. And it, every human interaction you have has some kind of an effect on you. And so um, it's a matter of uh, kind of reassessing your relationship with them and giving them a little bit more room and flexibility, trying to understand more kind of where they're coming from and uh, strategies for helping them out and uh, so forth. I think that help, helps a lot because that's what I would like to get. It, 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 I used to think that's Oh, it's that over there. It's that my dad is having a problem over there. My sister who's got an autistic son. Or, uh, it, it's her over there. It's not over there. It's right here at home. And once we realize that it's it's um, it's everywhere, it's all these people around us, then we have a much better chance of of um, of uh, inclusivity, right? It's not just oh, there's a, a strange person over there, and we're we're supposed to be nice to them and pull them in. It's like no, it's your it's your mother, it's your brother, it's your cousin, it's you know, it's like, uh, and I think that that is what's really important is that 
it's around us, it's among us, it's within us, all this neurodiversity. So um, uh, it, it doing what we can to put names to things, to help people get assessed, uh, to uh, help counselors um, more effectively deal with um, the psychological problems that arise uh, amongst families uh, is would be ideal. Just let's get more research <laughs> on, on neurodiversity and the effects on everybody, not just the neurodiverse person, but the, per- the people and uh, the rest of the people in the family. Uh, let's develop strategies for um, for dealing with this, making everybody really happier. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a a wonderful, optimistic, beautiful note to end on. But Martha, I want to thank you so much for for your vulnerability, for sharing your, your beautiful story and, and letting us into your perspective and your world and for educating me in particular, because this is something that I, I was not, uh, very, uh, very informed on, uh, but for reminding us that this vulnerability is courage and that we can be better allies and that we can humanize, um, each other a little bit more regardless of what's, what's going on. But thank you for your time. And this has been really a pleasure. So I hope that we get to chat uh, soon about other stuff as well. <laughs> I do. I do. We've got a whole long list of other things to talk about, Heidi. Thank you so much for, uh, uh, for letting me talk. Uh, you know, I did. Wonderful. Well, I will be, oh, did I lose you? All right. I lost you right at the end. <laughs> no, I think we're okay. I think we're okay. I still hear you. Okay. So. Well, I hope you have a All wonderful right. Sunday, and uh, and I'll be in touch real soon. Okay, thanks a lot, Jaime. Have a great Sunday. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. 